Hello and welcome to the Red Team podcast with me, Colin Talbot, talking about government, politics, public policy, public administration, and occasionally a few other things. So I'm joined for this session by Dr. Hannah White, who's Deputy Director of the Institute for Government. Uh, Hannah also previously ran the Committee on Standards in Public Life and was a clerk in the House of Commons. And she's just published a book, very timely, called Held in Contempt, What's Wrong with the House of Commons? So Hannah, your book couldn't be more timely um, in terms of Parliament being held in contempt. I suppose we could start, I'm going to ask in sort of three sections, firstly about what's wrong, what's the diagnosis, what's what's the problems with the House of Commons, secondly, what do you think needs to change to put it right, and thirdly, uh, the sort of $64,000 question, is it actually going to happen, is there going to be change, and if so, in what direction, so let's start off with the diagnosis, what, what do you think's wrong from your experience and analysis? Well, it's only a short book, so I was only able to cover some of the problems I think there are with the House of Commons. Um, but I think the overall thesis is, is is really to say that public trust in, in Parliament is exceptionally low. It's been low since the MPs' expenses scandal, but it's not recovered. And uh, if you compare our Parliament to parliaments uh, in other European countries, for example, uh, our Parliament is, is held in... in relatively very low esteem other countries uh, for example Denmark have been increasing uh, trust in their parliament so it's not a sort of universal truth that parliament has to be held um, in, in in contempt as I say by by the public and I, I feel that having worked in and around Westminster for the last 20 years the MPs just don't take this issue seriously enough and they don't face up to the things that they themselves could be doing to build public trust um, in, in the House of Commons. And so some of the things I think about will echo, I think, very loudly with people's experience of, of what's recently happened in the, in the House of Commons. So I talk about uh, the essentially the exceptionalism, uh, which is a feature of, of too many MPs' uh, attitudes. Uh, the fact that they uh, take, if you like, the justifiable ways in which MPs are different and should be treated as an exception, the rules that we have, the privileges that the the Parliament affords to MPs to enable them to do their jobs. And they go beyond that and they think, well, actually, no rules should apply to us. And, you know, we've we've seen this in in recent days. We've seen it with Partygate. We've seen it with a whole host of rule breaking and even law breaking uh, with with MPs in, in Westminster. And I think um, that, that the it really creates a distance between MPs and, and the public when the public see MPs acting as though the rules that they are setting for everybody else don't apply to them. I also look in the book at the nature of parliamentary procedure and language. And I think, again, that has a really distancing effect for the public. It's really hard to understand a lot of the time what's going on in Parliament. And in fact, I was talking the other day to a, a former um, uh, cabinet minister, uh, Robert Buckland, who is saying often 
his colleagues would come to him and ask him to explain what was on the order paper, particularly that he was talking about uh, when the House of Commons was doing ping pong with the House of Lords in the final stages of legislation. And he said they just don't understand what's going on. And if MPs can't understand it, how can the public be expected to understand it? And if they don't understand it, how can they value it is is the question I I raise in the book. And then I also uh, look at the the fact that uh, the House of Commons remains uh, not descriptively representative of of the population it serves. And I think that MPs should be doing a lot more to make the House of Commons seem an attractive destination for people to come and work in. And, you know, granted, a lot of the problems we have with uh, representation in in the House of Commons relate to party processes, party you know selection processes, and so on. But I think there is a really important thing, and, and this week has been really depressing on that front about making uh, the, the environment seem like somewhere where people would want to come and work. And if it's misogynistic and discriminatory, and if there's this sort of banter which is just accepted, and people are supposed to sort of suck it up when they have things said to them, that's not a place where people are going to choose to want to come and work. So I think that's something that MPs, again, need to really take responsibility for for dealing with. Um, And I look also in in the book um, at at the government's responsibility for for low public trust in Parliament, the way, particularly in recent years, um, government has increasingly tried to sideline Parliament, both during Brexit, also in in the COVID period, um, to sort of tell the public that Parliament doesn't actually matter. And actually, I, f- I find that really uh, counterproductive and potentially undermining of our of our system of government. I, I think you you also explore, and this is the bit that particularly interests me, that the whole issue about the, uh, the constitutional setup um, between Parliament, the House of Commons, and the executive side of government. Um, I mean, one of the things I've been banging on about for years is the way that the uh, the budget process in the House of Commons is unlike virtually any other parliament in that only the government can propose to spend money. Um, the budgets are take it or leave it affair, essentially. To I mean, there are some nuances, but it's essentially a take it or leave it affair. In most other parliaments, draft budgets are presented and then there's all sorts of toing and froing before the final budget is agreed. But and that reflects the balance of power between the executive and the commons. Um, but you you talk quite a bit in the book about about other ways in which the executive side of government just dominates everything. Yeah, I mean, I talk about the the sort of control that the executive has over time in the house, which is extremely significant that they set the agenda and that the rest of of um, the house doesn't really get a look in. And that again, as 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 you've said. In relation to the point you were making, that is is not typical of of other parliaments. The, the and to hear some government sort of ministers talk about it, you'd think it was a sort of universal truth that the the executive should have this degree of control. But actually, it, it's not at all the case. Um, and that then feeds into uh, government being able to control the extent of the scrutiny, for example, that. MPs can conduct over legislation. You know, I totally agree with you on the budget front. I mean, we've not only is is parliamentary sort of scrutiny of of budget matters massively controlled by the executive. I mean, the House of Lords doesn't even get a look in. Um, we also uh, at the Institute for Government have looked at the budget um, sort of policy making process and the tax policy making process, and that's just um, you know that gets almost no scrutiny within government. So you know, I think that is a is a is a serious um, issue. But the other thing I I 
talk about a lot um, because it sort of speaks to the overall theme of the book is the fact that government control of the House of Commons prevents the Commons reforming itself. So a lot of the way that the House of Commons works in its governance uh, gives power to vested interests and you know, primarily to the executive, also to the opposition in some circumstances. And the opposition always have an eye to you know, when they might next be in power and thinking that actually you know, they, they want to have you know, certain uh, advantages when that's going to be the case. But there are parliamentary committees, for example, procedure committee, uh, which comes up with you know, ideas about how parliament could do its job better but if they don't serve the interests of the government, the government just doesn't even give an opportunity for them to be debated, let alone decided by the House. So there's this inertia which is built into the system to the advantage of the people who already benefit from it, to the disadvantage of, I would say, all of the rest of us um, and some of the sort of broader objectives of a parliament which go beyond allowing the executive to, to get its programme of government uh, in place. Yeah, no, I completely agree with all that. Uh, there's an interesting item in the news this morning, by the way, I don't know if you heard yet, um, that the uh, it's been exposed that the Cabinet Office has been operating a clearinghouse for freedom of information requests and basically uh, not, not answering them on the basis of what the information is, but on the basis of who's asking, which is quite extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, I think this is something that Parliament has been getting bothered about. I think it's a, a, a PACAC, a Public Administration Constitutional Affairs Committee report, which has come out on this. And it just sort of highlights, I think, the fact that, you know, you can theoretically have these tools of transparency, things like freedom of information, parliamentary questions and so on, which are supposed to make government more open. But it does come down in the end to how those tools are actually operated within government. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, if there were secret sort of committees saying, well, you know, actually, that's a bit of a troublesome journalist. We're not, you know, transparency is great, but not when it comes to X or Y person. I mean, that just undermines the whole um, the whole concept. And I think if you do have a system like we do, where the executive has an enormous amount of control, one of your... Uh, tools to kind of uh, sort of mitigate that and make the system work has to be transparency. And if transparency <laughs> isn't operating as it should, then you're really starting to sort of undermine the system even further. Yeah, I'll give, give you a personal example. Um, back in January, the government published a paper on intergovernmental relations within the UK between Westminster and the Scottish, Welsh and Northern Ireland uh, governments. Uh, part of which was setting up a new council of prime minister and heads of government. Um, and I've been trying to get out of cabinet office. Uh, has it met? Has it been set up? Uh, has it got, it's supposed to have an independent secretariat staffed by all four governments. And I can't get anything out of them at all about whether or not this is happening. As far as I can see, nothing's actually happened, um, which is why they won't answer any questions. But you can't even get them to say, we won't answer. They just ignore questions and it's it's incredible isn't it because i mean what is the legitimate exemption for that i mean to say what what could they be saying under the foi act was a reason not to give you that information it's no. much easier just to not respond right <laughs> yeah absolutely well should we move on to the prescription really which is you know, what what do you, what do you say in the book about what you think could put some of these things right so i mean 
in the in the individual chapters, I come up with some sort of specific um, suggestions uh, for, for different aspects of the problems that I identify. I mean, the precursor to all of it has to be MPs accepting that low public trust in, in Parliament is, is an actual problem that needs to be addressed rather than something you shrug your shoulders at and say, yes, isn't it terrible? None of them, you know, respect us. Um, and I think, you know, this is a difficult ask for MPs because the reputation of Parliament, even though I would argue is absolutely fundamental to the operation of our democratic system, which is, after all, why Partygate is important. Like if if um, if it's OK for ministers to lie to, to Parliament, which, you know, the obviously the prime minister says he hasn't done, but that's the matter under debate. If uh, if that's okay, then then what does that mean for Parliament's scrutiny role? Um, so I, I think it, it's a difficult ask of, of MPs to say you have to think about the reputation of Parliament because they have so many other sort of calls on their time and 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 pressures. So they obviously have to think about their party. They have to think about uh, their position electorally, whether they're going to get uh, re-elected, they have to think about their personal interests and committee they might sit on, um, other things they're trying to achieve before you even think about their, you know, their family, <laughs> their personal well-being. Um, asking them also to take into account the reputation of Parliament, I think, you know, can you know feel it's often low down their priority list. But I think it ought to be higher up, um, and there are ways in which. Um, uh, that should manifest. So, I mean, one, for example, is just in the handling of individual problems which occur in Parliament. And um, Colin, you and I were saying before we started recording how there has just been a sort of seems to have been a deluge of cases of, of bad behaviour, essentially, as a shorthand, on, on the part of MPs uh, in recent weeks. We've had um, MPs uh, found guilty of criminal offences, uh, including the Prime Minister, which is, you know, a remarkable first. Uh, speed, um, uh, driving away from the scene of an accident, uh, ostracising staff, uh, potentially somebody accused of having watched porn in the House of Commons chamber. All these things are easy, I think, in some ways for uh, MPs to take each of them on their own merits and say, well, it would be really quite inconvenient right now to sanction this person or for political reasons, you know, it's just in the run up to the um, local elections. We don't want to engage with this problem and to brush each one under the carpet or to say it's just a question of a bad apple um, and we're not going to uh, do anything properly about it. Um, and I think that's a massive mistake because I think that each every time one of these things happens that in, in themselves might seem like a small thing, it just chips away and chips away at public confidence. And there's no sense in which the parties or MPs together are sort of putting their foot down and saying, you know, actually this sort of behavior is just not the professional standards of behavior that we expect. Uh, and so we're going to, you know, take swift action to, to, to demonstrate that. So I think it's, it's not assuming, so one thing that needs to change is that MPs need to sort of think about the bigger picture in terms of Parliament's reputation when they're addressing those smaller things. And as I say, that's not an easy thing to ask them to do, um, but I think it's really important. Um, then, as we've already discussed, there's uh, there's an issue around the executive's control of, of parliamentary time. Um, there's a question, obviously, about uh, there are, have been proposals in the past for a House Business Committee, which would enable uh, other 
MPs other than the, the government to have a say over what the agenda of the House was. That's one thing. But one thing I point out would be would be really useful would be to have a regular opportunity for debates about the running of parliaments and say, for example, policy proposals from the procedure committee. You know, there were there were really worked up proposals on reforming the P private members bill procedure, for example, which have just never been debated because the government's never given time for that to happen. Um, so if you had regular slots, so you said, you know, every six months, there has to be a slot for, a, the, for the House to debate and decide on a debatable motion, on a, on a decidable motion, a uh, substantive motion um, on something to do with um, uh, reform of the procedures of the House, that would just enable those issues to be aired and, and MPs to take a view on how to improve their own institution. Because I just feel like they don't get the opportunities to do that. So those are some of the things I think need, could happen. There's one that occurred to me, which is uh, an interesting point, which which uh, uh, people often misunderstand, which is that the ministerial code, which has figured in an awful lot of the discussions over the last few weeks, uh, is actually belongs to the prime minister and is not a, a document that's approved by the house itself. And I wonder whether, uh, to some extent, that would be a key change would be to actually have the rules about how ministers should behave um, set by the House rather than set by the government, which is then basically setting its own rules and policing its own rules. Yeah, I mean, I think there is, that, that's a really interesting suggestion. And it was, it was pointed out to me something I hadn't actually realised, which is that the, the part of the ministerial code, which um, has been so under debate about ministers shouldn't lie, shouldn't knowingly mislead parliament, is actually also uh, the terms of it in the, in the code are the same as the terms of a resolution of the, of the House of Commons, which was passed in mm. 1997. So you could say that you know, that's the <coughs> part of the code which is really doing what you, what you suggest. And I think it is important for the prime, you know, in theory, for the prime minister to have ownership of the ministerial code and to say, yes, this is how I want my government to run. Um, but in practice, if he says that and then won't brook any evidence that any behaviour is actually bre breaching that code, it, that, you know, that sort of sweeps away that sort of justification for him, him owning it. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, there's always been that tension between parliament and government, and we see it also over the sort of uh, rules about whether a parliament can demand certain civil servants will come and give evidence to it or not. Um, government never wants to concede that these things should be in parliamentary control. But I think if parliament were to take a view on the ministerial code and potentially, as you say, um, you know, a vote even at the start of each parliament on, on some, some of the key aspects of the text, I mean, maybe you wouldn't need it for some of the more sort of procedural stuff in the code. Um, and we've debated that in the IFG, whether it's, it would be useful to kind of split the code up and, and have the kind of ethical standards side of it separate to come some of the administrative stuff. And if you did that, maybe your idea about getting Parliament to own the ethical side of it um, could work. Okay. I, I suppose the $64,000 question is the prognosis is, is, is anything going to change? I mean, given the sort of structural problem that government dominates the business, and you make the point in the book that very often reform proposals have come forward within Parliament. MPs have recognised the need for change, but it gets blocked by the executive. I mean, what, what, how do we get around that? So I think the evidence is, and, and, and Parliament is not different to other large institutions in this regard, that the change most 
often happens after a crisis. Um, and you've, you've seen that, you saw that in the kind of aftermath of the expenses scandal, that was when changes were made to how select committees uh, were elected and so on. Um, you, you, and of course, as sort of MPs uh, salaries and expenses were then outsourced to an independent body. That was because that was a big scandal. We also saw some changes made to the House's rules on bullying and harassment after the sort of Me Too scandal hit, although there have been questions this week about the adequacy of just changing the rules um, and whether that actually leads to sufficient culture change. Um, so I, I think the sort of depressing reality is that incremental change is quite hard to drive in a system which, as you say, I argue is um, is sort of stacked against that. And, and one of the big problems is that there's no individual within the House of Commons whose job it is to kind of stand up for Parliament. No one with the sort of both that um, that role and any sort of degree of power that they can do stuff uh, without uh, having to consult loads of other people and and allow other interests to start to dilute any sort of agenda they might have. Um, so, I mean, I think the evidence is you really need ministers to want to do this stuff. So if you want to change things, you have to find reasons why it's in the interests of government uh, to change it, uh, which it very often isn't. Um, but that's what you need. You need sponsorship. And, you, and you, it can be that a crisis can lead to a situation where ministers want to demonstrate that, that they're, they're changing parliament for the better. Um, it could be that we're approaching that sort of moment. It could be that if the Conservative Party decide that they want a new leader, that a new leader might want to demonstrate that, uh, you know, a, a separation. You know, if Boris Johnson were to, to, to stop being prime minister, in part because of a series of, uh, of uh, scandals about his relationship with Parliament, you know, that might mean that his successor would want to sort of to, to put clear blue water um, and, to, and to, uh, to, to make some changes which um, uh, demonstrate the difference. It could also be, of course, that, you know, we've got an election coming up uh, in, in a couple of years that if uh, there was a change of government, that a new government coming in, if there was a feeling that uh, some of the problems uh, which had, had led to the defeat of the previous government, the, the new government wanted to demonstrate difference. It can be that manifesto commitments to do things differently uh, can be a useful way uh, to achieve these things. I have to say I reached the rather depressing conclusion at the end of the book that maybe all this stuff will only change if the Palace of Westminster burns down uh, as a kind of ironic consequence of Parliament's inability to, to restore the, the to agree on how to restore the, the palace if we saw a sort of Notre Dame style fire, um, then actually parliamentarians would be forced out of the building. They'd be forced to, at you know, short notice, um, think about what was most important about how they do their jobs, where they would could go, how they could do those things. Um, and, and it would, I think, sort of force, force them into a zero based review of um, how they do their jobs, how they do politics. Um, and what's most important and, and what they want to keep and what maybe they should they should ditch. Um, but obviously, nobody wishes that to happen in a um, in a sort of. Um, obviously, nobody wishes that to happen. Uh, and we don't want the Palace of Westminster to burn, to burn down at all. But it's just illustrative, I think, of the uh, enormous shove I think politics really kind of needs in order to see the sorts of changes which I think are necessary. But let's hope we don't need that dramatic uh, uh, an episode. And maybe, just maybe, we've got a window of opportunity 
given we've had the level of crisis we've had at the moment. If you want to read Hannah's book, it's available now from Manchester University Press and the title is Held in Contempt, What's Wrong with the House of Commons by Dr Hannah White.